Chapter Twelve, Part One of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Number. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter Twelve, Part One: The Battle of the Yalu, eighteen ninety-four. One result of the victory won by Tegetov at Lissa was that an exaggerated importance was for many years to come attached to the ram as a weapon of attack. In every navy in the world ships were built with bows specially designed for ramming. The sinking of the Re d'Italia had made such an impression on the public mind that it was in vain for a minority among naval critics to urge that the ram was being overrated, and to point out that even at Lissa for one successful attempt to sink an enemy by running her down there had been an untold number of failures. It was very gradually that the majority was brought to realize that a ship under full control could generally avoid a ramming attack, and that it could only be employed under exceptional circumstances, and against an already disabled enemy. Then the progress of invention and armaments introduced features into naval warfare that made it extremely difficult and dangerous for a large ship to come to such close quarters as an attempt to ram implies. First, the introduction of the Whitehead torpedo as part of the auxiliary armament of battleships and cruisers gave the ship attacked a means of sinking the aggressor as she approached, and the increase in the power of guns led naval tacticians to accept as a principle that fleet actions must be fought at ranges which were regarded as too distant for any effective action in earlier days. But for nearly thirty years after Lissa there were no fleet actions. Ships, armor, guns were all improved, and the great naval powers built on a larger and larger scale. Steel took the place of iron as the material for shipbuilding and armor. Naval gunnery became a precise science. Torpedoes were introduced, and with them such new types of ships as the swift torpedo boat and the destroyer. But there was very little fighting on the sea, though in the same period there were colossal conflicts on land. Hundreds of armor-clads were built that became obsolete and were turned over to the shipbreaker without ever having fired a shot in action. Theories of tactics for fleet actions were worked out on paper and tested to some extent at naval maneuvers, but the supreme test of battle was wanting. In the Franco-German War of 1870, the French Navy had such a decided superiority that the few German warships of the day were kept in their harbors, protected by batteries and sunken mines. The only naval action of the war was an indecisive duel between two gunboats. In the second stage of the war, the officers and men of the French Navy fought as soldiers in the defense of France. Guns were taken from the ships to be mounted on land fortifications. Admirals commanded divisions, formed largely of naval officers and bluejackets. Again in the War of 1878 between Russia and Turkey, the Russians had only a few light craft in the Black Sea, and the Turkish fleet under Hobart Pasha, weak as it was, held the undisputed command of these waters, and had only to fear some isolated torpedo attacks. In South American civil wars and international conflicts there were duels between individual ships and some dashing enterprises by torpedo boats, but nothing that could be described as a fleet action between ironclads. The only time a British armored fleet was in action was against the batteries of Alexandria on the occasion of the bombardment in July 1882. The forts, badly armed and constructed and inefficiently defended, were silenced, but a careful examination of them convinced experts that if they had been held by a better trained garrison, the victory would not have been such an easy matter. This and subsequent experiences have led to the general acceptance of the view that it will be seldom advisable to risk such valuable fighting machines as first-class battleships and armored cruisers in close action against well-constructed and powerfully armed shore defenses. 
It was not till the summer of 1894 that at last there was another pitched battle between fleets that included a large proportion of armored vessels. That action, off the mouth of the Yalu River, will be always remembered as the event that heralded the coming of a new naval power. A long rivalry between China and Japan for the control of Korea had resulted in an outbreak of war between the two empires of the Far East. For an island state like Japan, the command of the sea was a necessary condition for successful operations on the mainland of Asia, and for some years she had been building up a powerful fleet, the ships being constructed in foreign yards, as the Japanese yards were not yet in a position to turn out large warships. In the memory of living men, the Japanese fleets had been made up of primitive-looking war junks. After failures to build ships in Japan on the European model, the government had in the middle of the 19th century purchased some small steamships abroad, but it was not till 1876 that the first Japanese armor-clad, the Fuso, was constructed in England from designs by the late Sir Edward Reed. Naval progress was at first very slow, but solid foundations were laid. Young naval officers were attached to the British and other navies for professional training, and on their return to Japan became the educators of their fellow countrymen in naval matters. A serious obstacle to the acquisition of a numerous and powerful fleet was a financial question. Japan is not a rich country. At first, therefore, the Japanese did not venture to order battleships, but contented themselves with protected cruisers. They thought that these would be sufficient for the impending conflict with China, which possessed only a fleet of weak, protected cruisers of various types, and a couple of small coast defense ironclads that might be counted as inferior battleships. When war broke out between China and Japan in 1894, the fleet of the latter consisted of older ships of miscellaneous types and a number of new protected cruisers, some of them armed with quick-firing guns, a type of weapon only lately introduced into the world's navies. Of these modern cruisers, most had been built and armed in French yards, but the best and swiftest ship was a fine cruiser delivered not long before from Armstrong's yard at Elswick. The following lists give some details of the Japanese and Chinese fleets, only the ships engaged at the Yalu battle being included. But these ships represented almost the entire strength of the two rival navies, and no really effective ship was absent on either side. While to make up the two squadrons, ships were sent to sea that in a European navy would have been considered obsolete and left in harbor. A comparison of these two lists brings out some interesting points. The advantage in gunpower was clearly on the side of the Japanese. Of the heavier class of guns they had seventy to fifty-five, and there were no weapons in the Chinese squadron equal to the long twelve-and-a-half-inch rifled breech-loaders of French make carried by four of the Japanese cruisers. But there was a further gain in gunpower for the Japanese in the possession of one hundred twenty-eight quick-firers, some of them of fairly heavy caliber. The quick-firing gun was then a new weapon. It is really a quick loader, a gun fitted with a breech action that can be opened and closed by a rapid movement, and so mounted that the recoil is taken up by mechanism in the carriage, which at once automatically runs the gun back into firing position, while the process of loading is further accelerated, for the smaller caliber guns, by making up the ammunition like that of a rifle, with projectile and charge in a big brass-cased cartridge, so that the gun can be loaded up by one movement, and the cartridge contains its own means of ignition, and is fired by pulling off a trigger. The lighter quick-firers are further mounted on pivots, so that they can be easily moved through an arc of a circle by one man, who keeps his eyes on a moving target, and his finger on the trigger ready to fire. The storm of shells that poured from the Japanese quick-firers was even more terrible for the Chinese than the slower fire of the heavy guns, and of these new quick-firing guns the Chinese only had three on the little Kwang-Ping. Japanese Fleet Ship Yoshino Tonnage 4,150. Quick-firers, 44. Notes. 
Swiftest ship in either fleet. Speed 23 knots. 2-inch steel protective deck. Built by Armstrong. New protected cruisers. Ship Matsushima. Tonnage 4,277. Heavy guns 12. Quick firers 16. Machine guns 6. Notes. 2-inch steel protective deck. Barbette forward covered with 12-inch armor and armed with a long Kane 12.5-inch gun. Ship Ikitsushima. Tonnage 4,277. Heavy guns 12. Quick firers 16. Machine guns 6. Notes. 2-inch steel protective deck. Barbette forward covered with 12-inch armor and armed with a long Kane 12.5-inch gun. Ship Hashidate. Tonnage, 4,277. Heavy guns, 12. Quick firers, 16. Machine guns, 15. Notes. 2-inch steel protective deck. Barbette forward covered with 12-inch armor and armed with a long Kane 12.5-inch gun. Ship, Takachiko. Tonnage, 3,650. Heavy guns, 8. Machine guns, 12. Notes. 3-inch steel protective deck. Speed, 18 knots. Ship, Naniwa Khan. Tonnage, 3,650. Heavy guns, 8. Machine guns, 12. Notes. 3-inch steel protective deck. Speed, 18 knots. Ship, Akitsushima. Tonnage, 3,150. Heavy guns, 1. Quick firers, 12. Machine guns, 10. Notes. Two and a half inch steel protective deck. One long twelve and a half inch Kane gun. Ship Chiyoda. Tonnage 2450. Quick firers 24. Machine guns 13. Notes. Small partly armored cruiser. Four and a half inch armored belt over two thirds of length. One inch steel protective deck. Old ironclads launched 1877 and 8. Ship Fuso. Tonnage, 3,718. Heavy guns, 6. Machine guns, 8. Notes. 4.5-inch armor belt amidships. Ship Hayei. Tonnage, 2,200. Heavy guns, 9. Notes. 7-inch armor belt, 9-inch armor on battery. Ship Akagi. Tonnage, 615. Heavy guns, 2. Machine guns, 2. Notes, Gunboat. Ship, Saikyo Maru. Tonnage, 600. Quick firers, unknown. Notes, Armed merchant steamer carrying only a few small quick firers. Total heavy guns, 70. Total quick firers, 128. Total machine guns, 84. Chinese fleet. Armored. Ship, Chen Yuan. Tonnage, 7,430. Heavy guns, 6. Machine guns, 12. Notes. Coast defense battleships, 14-inch armor belt, four 12-inch guns on each ship, mounted in pairs in turrets with 12-inch armor. Ship, Ting Yuan. Tonnage, 7,430. Heavy guns, 6. Machine guns, 12. Notes. Coast Defense Battleships, 14-inch armor belt, four 12-inch guns on each ship, mounted in pairs in turrets with 12-inch armor. Ship, 
Lai Yuen. Tonnage, 2,850. Heavy guns, 4. Machine guns, 8. Notes. Armored cruisers, 9.5-inch armor belt, 8-inch armor on barbettes forward. Ship, King Yuen. Tonnage, 2,850. Heavy guns, 4. Machine guns, 8. Notes. Armored cruisers, 9.5-inch armor belt, 8-inch armor on barbettes forward. Ship, Ping Yuen. Tonnage, 2,850. Heavy guns, 3. Machine guns, 8. Notes. Armored cruiser, 8-inch armor belt, 5 inches on barbette. Unarmored. Ship, C. Yuen. Tonnage, 2,355. Heavy guns, 3. Machine guns, 10. Ship, Ching Yuen. Tonnage, 2,300. Heavy guns, 5. Machine guns, 16. Notes. Quickest ships in the fleet. Speed, 18 knots. Ship, Chi Yuen. Tonnage, 2,300. Heavy guns, 5. Machine guns, 16. Notes. Quickest ships in the fleet. Speed, 18 knots. Ship, Yang Wei. Tonnage, 1,350. Heavy guns, 6. Machine guns, 7. Ship, Chao Young. Tonnage, 1,350. Heavy guns, 6. Machine guns, 7. Ship, Quang Chia. Tonnage, 1,300. Heavy guns, 7. Machine guns, 8. Ship, Quang Ping. Tonnage, 1,030. Quick firers, 3. Machine guns, 8. Four torpedo boats and three small gunboats. Total heavy guns, 55. Total quick firers, 3. Total machine guns, 120. The Chinese fleet had more armor protection. The two coast defense battleships were heavily armored, and there were three other less completely protected ironclads, although seven other ships had no armor whatever. In the Japanese fleet, the only armored vessels were the two old ironclads belonging to an obsolete type, and the armor-belted Chiyoda. The real fighting force of the fleet was made up of the seven new protected cruisers. Some of these had armor on the barbettes in which their long bow guns were mounted, but their protection consisted in a deck plated with steel covering the vitals of the ship, boilers, engines, and magazines, all placed as low as possible in the hull. There was some further protection afforded by the coal bunkers placed along the waterline amidships. The theory of the protected cruiser was that everything below the waterline was safeguarded by this armored deck, and as the overwater portion of the ship was further divided by bulkheads into numerous watertight compartments, the danger of the ship being sunk was remote. The protected cruiser is no longer regarded as having a place in the main fighting line, but the Japanese cruisers gave such good results in the Yalu battle that for a while an exaggerated value was attached to it. But in one point, and the most important of all, the Japanese had an overwhelming advantage. The Chinese officers and men were mostly brave enough, but almost entirely unskilled. The only really efficient officers and engineers they had were a few Englishmen and Americans and two Germans. The Japanese, from Admiral Count Ito, who commanded, down to the youngest of the Blue Jackets, were not only brave with the inherited recklessness of death and suffering which is characteristic of their race, but were also highly trained in every branch of their profession, first-rate sailors, excellent gunners. 
and the fleet had for years been exercised in manoeuvres so that the ships could work together as an organized whole the spirit which animated it was that of no surrender victory at any cost it is a standing order of the japanese navy that if a ship should strike her colors the first duty of her consorts is not to try to recapture her but to endeavor to sink her and her crew the mandarin ting who commanded the chinese fleet was more of a soldier than a sailor but he had some sea experience and was a thoroughly brave man as soon as war was declared he was anxious to go in search of his enemy he urged upon the pekin government that the first step to be taken was to use the chinese fleet to attack the japanese transports which were conveying troops to korea this would of course lead to a battle with the enemy's fleet but ting was quite confident that he would defeat the japanese if he met them in giving this advice the chinese admiral was reasoning on correct principles even if his confidence in his own fighting power was not justified by facts to keep the fleet idle at port arthur or weihai wei would be to concede the command of the sea to japan without an effort to dispute it but the mandarins at pekin would not accept their admiral's view in the first place they were alarmed at the fact that in a minor naval engagement off the korean coast at the very outset of the conflict the weak chinese force in action had fared very badly the quarrel in korea had begun without a regular declaration of war on the coast there were the chinese cruiser tsi yuen and a small gunboat the kwang yi on twenty four july the two ships had gone to sea to look for and give their escort to some transports that were expected with reinforcements from china in the gray of the morning on the twenty fifth they fell in with and were attacked by three of the swift protected cruisers of the japanese fleet the yoshino akitsushima and the naniwa khan the fight was soon over the gunboat was sunk and the little cruiser was attacked at close quarters by the naniwa khan whose shells riddled her weak conning tower killing all within it the Sing Yuen fled, pursued by the Naniwa, whose commander, by the way, was Captain Togo, famous afterwards as a victorious admiral of the Russo-Japanese War. The Sing Yuen made good her escape, only because the chase brought the Naniwa Khan on the track of the transport Kaoshing, and Togo stopped to dispose of her by sending her to the bottom. This incident made the Pekin government nervous about the fighting qualities of their ships and then they were afraid that if ting went to sea with all his ships the japanese fleet would elude him and appear with an expeditionary force at the mouth of the pei ho capture the taku forts and land an army to march on pekin they therefore ordered admiral ting to collect his fleet at port arthur and watch the sea approach to the capital the japanese were therefore able to land their troops in korea without interruption and soon overran the peninsula when they were advancing to capture Pingyang, the Chinese began to concentrate a second army to defend the crossing of the Yalu River, the entrance into southern Manchuria. It was now evident even to the Pekin Mandarins that the Japanese plans did not at this stage of the war include a raid on the Pei Ho and the Chinese capital, so Admiral Ting was at last allowed to go to sea in order to protect the movement of transports along the western shores of the Korean Bay to the mouth of the Yalu on fourteenth september five large steamers crowded with troops left taku under the convoy of six chinese cruisers and four torpedo boats bound for the mouth of the yalu river next day as they passed talianwan bay near port arthur they were joined by ting with the rest of the fleet on the second day they safely reached their destination and the troops were disembarked and early on the seventeenth ting again put to sea with his fleet to return to port arthur he had expected to have to fight the japanese on his outward voyage and he knew that there was a still greater chance of meeting them on his way back down the bay he had a few white officers with him on board his flagship the armor-clad ting yuen was a german artillery officer major von honecken on the other battleship was commander mcgiffen formerly of the united states navy nominally second in command to the chinese captain of the chen yuen but practically acting as her commander 
On some of the other ships there were a few British-born engineer or gunnery officers, and some of the latter had been petty officers in the English Navy. By the advice of these non-Chinese officers, Ting had done something to remedy the defects of his fleet. A good deal of woodwork had been cut away and thrown overboard, though far too much of it still remained, and on several ships there was a dangerous quantity of carved ornamental wood on the upper works, much of it all the more inflammable because it was gilded and lacquered in bright colors which it was the practice to clean with oiled rags. The thin steel roofs of barbettes and the shields of many of the guns had been removed, as the Si Yuen's experiences in the fight with the Naniwa Khan had shown that such light steel did not keep out the shells of the Japanese quick-firers, but served only to ensure their bursting with deadly effect. Sometimes a gun-shield had burst a shell, which if there had been no such attempted protection would perhaps have passed harmlessly over the heads of the gunners. Round the barbettes of the ships, sacks of coal were stacked as an emergency method of strengthening these defenses. Of coal the fleet had an abundance, but it was woefully short of ammunition, and much of what was on board was old and defective. If Ting had had more professional knowledge and training, he would have been more anxious as to the probable result of a battle. Where were Admiral Ito and the Japanese fleet? Early in August he had crossed the Yellow Sea with his cruiser squadron, and shown himself before Port Arthur and Weihai Wei. He drew the fire of the seaward forts at long range, and replied with a few shots, but he made no attack. He was engaged only in a reconnaissance, and was quite satisfied when he ascertained that the Chinese ships were remaining in harbor. He then returned to the Korean side of the Yellow Sea, until nearly the middle of September was employed in escorting the convoys of transports from Japan, and protecting the disembarkation of the reinforcements they were bringing to Korea. On Friday, 14 September, the same day on which the Chinese convoy with the reinforcements for Manchuria left Taku, Ito had completed his work in connection with the transport of Japanese troops, having landed the last detachments at Chinampo in the estuary of the Tatung River. Higher up the river, General Nadzu's army was attacking the Chinese walled town of Pingyang. Ito sent his gunboats up the Tatung to cooperate with Nadzu, and leaving his torpedo boats at the river mouth, went to sea with his fleet. He steered for the mouth of the Yalu River, intending to reconnoiter the Chinese positions there, and obtain information as to the reported concentration of troops near the river mouth, but under the belief that the enemy's fleet was still at Port Arthur, Admiral Ting was just as ignorant of his enemy's position and movements. Early on the morning of Monday, 17 September, he had expended some ammunition in practice at floating targets off the mouth of the Yalu. The fleet had then anchored, and the men were given a rest while the cooks got dinner ready. This was about 11 a.m., a little later there was unexpected news that interrupted the cooking. The lookouts at the mastheads of the anchored fleet reported that the smoke of many steamers was rising above the horizon far away to the southwestward. It was a bright sunny day with a perfectly smooth sea, clear air, and a blue sky, and the lookout men could easily make out that the smoke rising above the skyline came from a long line of funnels. Admiral Ting had no doubt it was the Japanese fleet, and he gave orders to weigh anchor and clear for action. Early that morning Admiral Ito had heard from coasting craft that the Chinese fleet was at sea, and one trader retailed to him a rumor that the fleet was anchored behind Hai Yang Island, where there was a sheltered roadstead. But on reaching Hai Yang he found only a few fishing boats lying behind the island. He continued his voyage towards the Yalu, now anticipating a meeting with Ting, unless the Chinese admiral had already run down the other coast of the bay, and so passed him at a distance during the previous night. Ito's fleet was steaming in line ahead, and was organized in two squadrons. The van squadron was led by his second-in-command, Admiral Suboy, who had hosted his flag on the fast cruiser Yoshino. After her in succession came the cruisers Takachiko, Akitsushima, and Naniwa Khan. 
Then there was a considerable interval between the van squadron and the leading ship of the main squadron, the cruiser Matsushima, flying Count Ito's flag. Next to her came the armored cruiser Chiyoda, and then the Matsushima's two sister ships, the cruisers Ikitsushima and Hashidate. The four ships of the van squadron and the four leading ships of the main squadron represented the chief strength of Ito's fleet, his eight modern cruisers. After them came the two old ironclads Hiei and Fuso, the gunboat Akagi, and the small-armed merchant steamer Saikyo Maru. The long line of warships steaming swiftly through the sunlight must have looked more like a fleet arrayed for some festive occasion than squadrons prepared for imminent battle, for every ship was painted a brilliant white, with the gilded device of the chrysanthemum forming a broad golden shield on her bows, and the red and white sun flag of Japan flew from every masthead. At half-past eleven, half an hour after the Chinese had perceived the approach of the Japanese fleet, the Yoshino, which was leading the advancing line of the van squadron, signaled that there was a dense mass of black smoke on the horizon inshore. This was the smoke produced by Ting's furnaces, as his ships hurriedly stoked their fires to get full pressure on the boilers. Then the Chinese fleet was seen coming out and forming in line of battle. End of chapter 12, part 1 Recording by Nick Number